2: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Catherine Shen. Have you ever been walking on a sidewalk that suddenly disappears into a busy street? Or found yourself unable to get a point A to point B through public transit? Or how often has traffic held up your morning? For civil engineers and city planners, these things are all connected. And for many of them, car dependency is part of the problem. 92% of American households reported owning at least one vehicle in a recent five-year 2021 census report, and Connecticut falls just below that national average. Today, we talk about car culture in America and how our dependency on cars can translate into policies that prioritize roads over sidewalks and highways over public transit. What are your concerns where you live? We want to hear from you. Give us a call at 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Coming up, we'll also hear from University of Connecticut Professor Emeritus Dr. Norman Garrett, a luminary in the field of transportation and civil engineering. But first, one of the many former students he has inspired is Adam Weber. He's a project manager with the city of New Haven's engineering department, who moonlights as a popular TikToker, also known as at Everyday Engineering. Thanks so much, Adam, for joining us today.
1: Good morning. Thank you for having me on the show.
2: So when did you know you wanted to become a civil engineer? I hear that Lego played a huge part in that. And considering I just bought myself a new set, I am very excited to hear about this.
1: Yes, I was a very big Lego kid. I also played a lot of roller coaster tycoon. Um, and so when I was thinking about what do I want to study in college, I knew I liked math and science. And I just kind of looked up what major would lead to roller coaster design. And it was a mix of like civil or structural engineering. And so I figured, let's go for civil. And it turns out uh, it's a really good fit for me.
2: And so Dr. Garrett will be joining us in a in a moment. But can you talk about what was it about his class that really made things click for you? Obviously, it helped that you had an interest. But what was it that really connected that together?
1: Yeah. So all through college, I knew that civil engineering is probably the right fit, but I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do with it. It wasn't until senior year that I took um, a class called Transportation Case Studies uh, with Dr. Garrett. Um, In order to fulfill a, a transportation requirement, and it wasn't until his class that I was actually taught about the history of transportation in this country, you know, all in my schooling beforehand, it was just, you know, Ford's assembly line and cars provide freedom, but I never actually learned about how our dependence and reliance on cars really destroyed a lot of cities in this country.
2: Well, I really love that clarity, too, because I would love for you to help us define what civil engineering is, because I think, um, especially if you're not familiar with it, we tend to group engineering into just one big subject. But what exactly is civil engineering?
1: Right. So civil engineering is basically the design of our built environment. So there's many different subsets. There's transportation, there's structural, which works with like buildings and big structures. Um, there's environmental, there's geotechnical, there's water and wastewater, so everything that makes up um, our public infrastructure that we use.
2: And with your role with the city of New Haven, you're now helping on projects and areas that you grew up driving through. Can you talk to us about you know, what is it like day to day as a project manager? What does that mean?
1: Um, it's a lot of fun, uh, first off, but it's um, a lot of design um, on my end, so we're working on a lot of big roadway projects Um, trying to take our, our big multi-lane roads and make them more multimodal. So providing infrastructure for safe travel on foot, on bike, by transit and cars. And then there's also a lot of field work. You know, we get out into the city and inspect the projects that are going on.
2: One I love that you describe being a project manager as fun because I don't think we hear that every day and I have to be honest, it wasn't wasn't until I became a reporter that I realized how complicated um, your role can be and I'm really excited to hear that. It's fun. And also a reminder for our Mm -hmm. listeners that you can also join this extremely fun conversation with your questions for civil engineer Adam Weber or coming up our transportation expert, UConn and UConn professor emeritus, Dr. Norman Garrick. Give us a call at 888-720-9677 or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Adam, we already have one question for you from Carrie Ann Provost, a Hartford resident and blogger who says she's been following your videos on TikTok. And she writes, the city of New Haven has been installing street treatments like a peanut roundabout and a Contraflow bike lane that are rarely, if ever, seen elsewhere in Connecticut. How is it that New Haven has been able to innovate like this? Is it finances, leadership, expertise? Basically, how can those of us watching with envy emulate this in other cities? What's your response, Adam?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think it comes down to the people, um, the leadership who are making the decisions on the ground, um, as well as the, the citizens of the city. I remember when I first started with the city we were going through a lot of public meetings for some of our big road redos, and it was just a really big breath of fresh air that we were proposing things like road diets and bike lanes, and the public was actually very much in support of it. Usually you get a lot of opposition in other places in the state. Um, but I think it's also, you know, the people that you have working on the designs and the leadership. You know, we have a mayor that enjoys biking to work. Um, We have people in the department that have experience taking the bus, riding a bike, walking, um, you know, for commuting or for their general errands and not just for recreation. And, you know, we have a a willingness to try out things that maybe aren't new to other countries around the world, but might be new to places like uh, Connecticut and the United States.
2: And speaking of new, can you talk to us about this new peanut roundabout in Westville? Um, it was a plan to ease traffic in an area where there had been 50 crashes over three years, although thankfully no fatalities.
1: Yes. So that intersection was was pretty bad because it's not your standard 90 degree four-way intersection. The whole intersection was skewed at 45 degrees, which kind of messed up sight lines, and there was only stop signs on two of the approaches. Uh, Chapel Street was free flow, and so we knew that a roundabout was probably the best solution, but because of that skew angle, uh, the geometry just wasn't really working out too well. But we had seen some examples of peanut roundabouts elsewhere around the country. Uh, Carmel, Indiana has a lot of roundabouts that we look to. Um, But what the peanut does, it essentially ensures that the geometry coming into the roundabout works for all the approaches, even with that heavy skew angle. And so we figured, you know, that is the best solution for this area and we're going to build it.
2: And how has the response been in terms of the planning process? Are you hearing good things, bad things or just a general reaction from people that you're talking with?
1: Um, I think overall, it's pretty good. Um, there was definitely a, a bit more attention given to this project given its unique nature. Um, but so far, the, the response from the community has been very positive about it. I've been out there just watching cars go through it, watching people walk through or bike through on the cycle track, and it seems to be working really well. Speeds are much lower. Um, it just seems like a, a much safer environment now.
2: Well, in speaking with connecting with people, would love to get your story about how did TikTok come into the picture? When we think infrastructure, especially city government, we don't automatically think about TikTok.
1: Right. So when TikTok first came out, I wanted nothing to do with it. I didn't understand it. It just seemed like people making dance videos and I, w- I was involved with enough, <laughs> um, but then later on, uh, some friends would send me videos, and it's people, you know, actually making educational content on TikTok or showing what they do um, for a standard day at their work. And so I kind of pitched the idea to one of my friends who was also on TikTok. Like, do you think people might be interested in learning about basic engineering concepts? I had a few ideas kind of running around my head, and she's like, "Yeah, I go for it." So I took a chance. I I made an account. I posted a couple of videos, and people really seem to like it after a while, and uh, the, the response to it has been incredible.
2: Now, that sounds like a really cool idea. Like I can't imagine if I had that resource available when I was in school. Um, could just inspire someone to want to go into project managing. And you've also recently documented a walking tour from Branford to New Haven on TikTok. What were some of the things that you observed? Can you paint us a picture?
1: Yeah, so um, I met up with this other creator, Jonathan Stalls. His handle is Pedestrian Dignity on TikTok, um, and he just walks around and kind of documents the state of pedestrian infrastructure in our country. Um, so he was doing a book tour, walking from Providence to New York. So I joined him for a little bit from uh, from Branford into New Haven, uh, walking along Route One, um, the sidewalk condition, you know, if there was a sidewalk, first of all, was not great. Um, You know, there was sometimes only sidewalk, like a couple panels at corners. Uh, There might not be like an actual crosswalk signal or a button. We had to walk in the shoulder for most of the time. We got yelled at by motorists, get out of the road. You know, we would have loved to get out of the road, but there was no sidewalk to go onto. It was just a, a very harrowing environment. It really only got better until we got into downtown New Haven, where you know, there are sidewalks provided.
2: I have definitely been yelled at um, being a cyclist on the road, which has kept me off the road as a cyclist and have not had that experience as a pedestrian yet. But I will keep you posted when that doesn't mm-hmm. happen. <laughs> uh, you also recently talked about updates that were made to a Starbucks drive through line in Trumbull. Can you walk us through that? What does that what does that mean? And why is was that a good example of car dependency in Connecticut?
1: yes that was an interesting situation so i think a few years ago um, a new starbucks opened in trumbull and i think it was designed in some way that the drive-through could hold like around 15 cars which is a lot more than usual um i heard that it was maybe designed that way to you know ensure that the drive-through would never back up but the drive-through did back up all the way out onto the main road it was causing all sorts of traffic problems to the point where the town planning and zoning commission decided to uh, talk about at their meeting. And they had actually voted on uh, sending a letter to the Starbucks asking them to try to find efficiencies um, with the drive through. And so I just thought this was an interesting situation. Um, In transportation planning, we often talk about something called induced demand, that if you build more transportation infrastructure for cars, And adding more capacity, it actually kind of works the opposite way. It actually increases congestion because it attracts more drivers um, to this facility. Um, When you add like a lane to a highway, that process can usually take maybe five or ten years. But it was interesting, you know, they build this drive through with excess capacity and it pretty much fills up immediately. that, That was pretty interesting.
2: You've been listening to Adam Weber, who's a project manager for New Haven's engineering department, and he'll be staying with us. Coming up is UConn professor emeritus Dr. Norman Garrick, who will join this conversation. What questions do you have for these transportation and civil engineering experts? Give us a call, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 wmpr or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
1: So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on-the-go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to, to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health.
2: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Joining me now to continue this very exciting conversation about car dependency in the US is Dr. Norman Garrett. He's a University of Connecticut professor emeritus. And still with us is Adam Weber, who is the project manager with the New Haven Engineering Department. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Garrett.
0: Thank you, Catherine. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: And just a reminder that you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Dr. Garrett, you moved to Switzerland with your husband five years ago. Tell us what drew you there and what has it been like?
0: Well, one of the things that drew me here was the quality of life, and that is driven largely by how the city is designed and the fact that it's not an auto-oriented city. You can get everywhere, anywhere by public transportation easily. And I've, and that makes for a very fascinating place. It makes for a very easy place to access. And it's a place that is filled with, um, with life in all kinds of ways.
2: I think being auto free does not necessarily connect with um being easy uh when we talk about this being in the states so dr gary what can connecticut learn from switzerland based on your experience so far
0: well it's definitely a different situation in connecticut Um, there is now the awareness that we need to be moving towards a more urban car-free lifestyle in Connecticut and that has happened over the last um, several years and part of what has happened is um, programs like these on where we live that has really changed the, the debate. But what has changed is the awareness that this is the direction we need to move in. What has not changed is really an understanding of what we need to do to get there.
2: And we are going to take a moment to take a call from Bud from New London. Bud, you are on the air.
3: Hi. Thank you so much. Uh, this is a great program. Uh, Dr. Garrett, I don't know if you remember, but I had asked you about the uh, uh, the Cambridge plan because I think it would be a good overlay for Southeastern Connecticut, and you sent me a copy of that. Uh, but before that, I was taking our class on lean uh, management Um lean manufacturing where they say that transportation is the biggest waste and when you have a disconnected fragmented transportation system uh it's very wasteful so i wanted to thank you and i think the cambridge plan would be a good overlay for southeastern connecticut and i i want your i'd like your opinion on that
2: thank you so much
0: i I remember the the discussion and what um, cambridge has done is to put the transportation work in the context of community development so that the transportation folks have to answer to um, a leader that is interested in how the city develops from a quality of life, from an economic point of view. In Connecticut, in most places, that is not the case. Uh, the transportation people are just concerned, are, are mostly concerned with, preventing traffic congestion. And if that's all you focus on, then you get a lot of what we're seeing, a lot of what Adam spoke about earlier, where you're just focusing on bigger roads, no sidewalks, etc. So that is, to me, is really a different mindset where you understand that transportation creates the environment where we live. And it's really important that we, we we really make that shift in our thinking.
2: And just another quick reminder for our listeners that you can also join the conversation with questions for our civil engineer, Adam Weber, or Professor Dr. Norman Garrick. Give us a call at 888-720-9677 or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And with that, we're going to take another call from George at Ellington. George, you're on the air.
3: I wanted to ask your engineer if it would be unsafe to build shoulders that were designed only to support the weight of bikers on state roads and that would reduce, in that way, reduce the costs of expanding the width of state roads, or if they had to be built entirely like the entire highway to bear the weight of automobiles. The point being to reduce the cost of expanding some state road shoulders to have bike lanes throughout the state road system. For instance, Route 74 in Northwest, Northeast, Excuse me. Um, Hartford-Tolland area has many areas which are without any road shoulders, which can accommodate biking. And it, it, is it safe to just have a bike lane there? It would cost less, or would that not be safe for um, implementing?
2: Thank you so much for that call, George Adam. Can you respond to George's question?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would, I think, mainly shoulders, if they're provided on a road, they're meant for vehicular purposes for either, you know, pulling over to break down or to have some more space to maneuver. Um, But if you want to build, you know, separate bike lanes on the side of roads, bike lanes, you know, like George mentioned, do not require as much pavement as uh, vehicular roads. And so... We can, you know, we can build uh, separate bike paths using maybe only like two or three inches of asphalt. Whereas a road meant for vehicles would need somewhere like nine to twelve inches of asphalt. Um, I think the the bike path would have to be separate from a vehicular shoulder, though. We
2: have another bike biking question for Dr. Garrett. Perhaps we have AE on Twitter who asked, what are some of the ways to start the conversation about car dependence in smaller Connecticut towns? For example, I would like to bike to the grocery store, but it's treacherous. How do I start that conversation in my town, Dr. Garrett?
0: Yeah, (laughs) I've been trying to do that in my own of Mansfield, Connecticut for years. I'm not sure. Um, In Mansfield, one of the things that happened recently was someone was killed on uh, one of the state roads, and that started the conversation. And to me, it's unfortunate that it takes something like that to start the conversation that we are crisis-driven. But in some places, um, as part of um, plans, future plans for the city, transportation becomes an important part of that discussion. And in some places there is an opening as part of the um, the plan of development to to start that conversation.
2: And Dr. Garrett, Peter on Twitter also has a couple of questions for you, including why is there no high speed rail in Connecticut? And why is rail service in Connecticut so limited? And on top of that, why is there not a statewide transportation service for the disabled?
0: Well, firstly, um, I think rail is really fundamental to how we're going to start changing the state. Um, I actually push back against the term um, high-speed rail. I don't think that's what we need. What we need is efficient, um, safe, comfortable and attractive rail. High-speed is a term that is used in the US because I think we have so demonized rail that we need to actually rebrand it. But when I look at what happens in Switzerland, it's not about high-speed rail, it's about rail that is just fast enough to um, to satisfy the needs of the population in this country. And almost everybody in this city, I would say up to 70% of the population, use the tram almost on a daily basis. But yes, I agree that rail is really important, and we have started to see changes like the Hartford Line, I like some of the changes I see there, but when you look at the rolling stock, for instance, I think there really you have to call into question the the commitment in putting the kind of rolling stock that is on that line.
2: And Pete Harrison, the director of Desegregate Connecticut has a question for you, Adam. He asked if you have been following the Work, Live, Ride proposal, which he describes as a big chance to start adjusting away from car dependency in Connecticut, and if they think land use reform is a part of the equation, Adam?
1: Yeah, so I'll, I'll admit I haven't been following that too closely, but um, any efforts we can make um, to ensure that um, you know we move away from a, a car-dependent society and really focus on these places where um, you know we we can walk, bike, take transit, or improve those services in other places—it's um, definitely something to look forward to.
2: Dr. Garrett would also love what you think about that too, in terms of the start of adjustments to get away from car dependency in Connecticut, and if land use reform is also a part of that equation.
0: Oh, it's definitely a, par- a big part of the conversation, but I would go further and talk about the cities. Um, Adam is working in New Haven, and New Haven has really made big progress, but when you look at the other Connecticut cities, um, that's really where we need to start the discussion because what we have done in Connecticut over the last 60, 70 years is to depopulate the cities and to spread the population around the land. And that really worked for Connecticut up until around 20 years ago. The, the whole equation has changed new york has come back boston has come back we can't compete with those places without having strong urban centers and so when we talk about these things these issues of changing to a multimodal system to having strong rail we really need to be talking about the cities what stops that conversation sometimes is the racial segregation in connecticut which is not acknowledged of one of the problems that f- first fed the, um, the, the suburban um, sprawl and also feeds into how people perceive of um, public transportation.
2: Well, that is certainly something that we want to get into in a moment, but I do want to mention that because you talked about, uh, speaking of cities, you mentioned New York and Boston, which is something that we, or cities we cannot compare to, uh, in a 2021 op-ed for the Hartford Current, you wrote that downtowns are enlivened by doing the exact opposite of what we have tried in Hartford. Can you talk about why you see Hartford as an example of what not to do in many cases?
0: Well, we have spent the last um, 20 years studying downtown Hartford with many um, groups of former students. One of the things I, I remember years ago, I um, one of my students found a 1930 map of Hartford, uh, overhead of, of Hartford. And I looked at that and I was like, now I understand why Hartford doesn't work. Because you see from in 1930, an intact functioning place. And just 30 years later, we had more or less destroyed the center of that city with the two highways. We leveled one of the most magnificent high schools in the country, it's under I-84. We um, replaced huge swaths of that city with parking, with um, surface parking, and with garage parking, um, so those are two of the main things that happened to 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 Hartford: is urban um, renewal and the freeway building, and then the parking policies. I was, three things that I, I would say. Then,
2: One and just I, go for it.
0: No, I was just going to say that if you look at more successful places like Cambridge, like Seattle, like um, Portland, you see that they have um turned around those specific policies and those are where they're focused in changing the 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 faith of those cities.
2: Well and because you just mentioned the highways and leveling down schools and buildings and parking garages and surface parking, this this next question may seem to be an obvious question, but how does zoning play a part in this conversation? I'm imagining it's a big part of that conversation.
0: It's a huge part of the conversation. Um, Zoning in Connecticut, in the suburbs in particular, is used more to, to not to say what we want, but to say what we don't want. So in many places, for example, zoning is used to make sure that poor people can't move to some of these towns. It's used to segregate land use, which is the worst possible thing you, you, you want in a place that is multimodal. So yes, it's a massive part of the conversation is to change zoning. Parking is also a big part of, of zoning.
2: Well, you had just mentioned about segregation and speaking of you know race issues with transportation and infrastructure. You've also been talking about how racial fears and racial identity politics are used to reinforce these patterns of buying cars or houses in urban straw, sprawls, And considering that all of this is very quintessentially American ideals, can you talk more about this important connection between car culture and racism?
0: Well, it's um, I think it's become more and more obvious over the last several years that um, the policies of the 50s and 60s was used to um, reinforce segregation. So, for example, the highways were built either through Black neighborhoods or on the boundaries between racial different racial groups. And that is something that has become more and more obvious over the last several years as folks in different cities have started to talk about freeway, removal. But um, also suburbanization was driven by government policies, which largely excluded Black and brown folks from benefiting from the, the government grant that allowed people to move into the suburbs. But I think also the issue of how we demonize things like buses and and even trains in Connecticut, um, we see them as being for poor and and larger for um, black and brown people. And it goes even to the words such as urban. Urban is a dirty word in Connecticut that is used to mean a place with a lot of crime or where a lot of poor people live. So there are these kinds of systemic issues that need to be addressed in the state as we move forward with making changes.
2: And like we mentioned earlier, these are all issues that are very much connected. And you've also been looking into the cost of cars as an impediment on people. Based on a recent Forbes study, it found that average annual cost of full coverage car insurance in Connecticut is Uh, basically $1,700, plus they also noted that Connecticut is one of the most expensive states for car repairs, averaging about at least $400 for when your check engine light pops up, which is something we no one wants to see. Can you talk about this research and how it relates to everything that you just said?
0: Well, I am currently working with a uh, PhD student in geography, um, Quinn Malloy, and the word that we're looking at is the cost of transportation. And when we think about transportation costs, we usually focus on things like gas prices going up, et cetera. But what we wanted to focus on was if you live without a car, what is the cost of transportation versus if you have to have a car? And the problem in the US is that there are so many places, including Connecticut, where it's really tough. To, um, to live without a car, even in Hartford, even in Bridgeport. And what we're finding is that in places where you can get by without a car, where poor people get by without a car, they pay maybe um, $4,000 per year for transportation. In fact, less than that. But those poor people that have to have a car are paid four or five times more for the transportation and when you think about what poor people have to do to afford a car they have to get a clunker for example it's really um the fact that we force people into car ownership is a huge problem that needs to be recognized and need we need to start thinking how we can change it because it really impinges on people getting out of poverty
2: well, and you just spoke of how tough it is to live without a car, especially here in Connecticut. We had a year of free bus fares here, and that service ended on April 1st. Can you talk about how the perception of public transit in the U.S. is unique, and maybe even a little backwards, especially with what you just shared with us?
0: Well... The issue of the free bus fare is, I think, is a, is a contentious one to me because I think it's not a bad policy, but I think it puts the emphasis on the wrong place. What we need in Connecticut is not necessarily free bus because the bus, in most cases, do not get people where they want um, to go in an efficient way what we really need to be thinking about is how we can support a bus system that better serves people um and and i think part of the problem with free bus is that it reinforces the idea that bus is some kind of welfare program rather than a program that is important for how the whole society functions
2: You've been listening to UConn Professor Emeritus Dr. Norman Garrett and Adam Weber, who is a project manager for New Haven's Engineering Department. After a break, we're going to continue this conversation. Let us know what questions do you have for these transportation and civil engineering experts. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're talking about how much we depend on cars here in Connecticut. And just a quick note that we're also going to be hearing from Connecticut's new Department of Transportation Commissioner, Garrick Yucalito, on Where We Live on Tuesday, April 25th. So make sure to not miss that program and come with your questions. And now to talk more about car dependency is Adam Weber. He's a project manager with the New Haven Engineering Department and Dr. Norman Garrick, who is a University of Connecticut professor emeritus. And just another reminder, too, that you can also give us a call at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Dr. Garrett, we talked about how zoning plays a big part in the car dependency conversation, but also want to ask you, what role does housing play when we talk about uh, us being super dependent on cars in Connecticut?
0: Well, let me give you one example relating to parking. So in most places in Connecticut, there are requirements for parking that you must provide minimum parking. And if you look at the the amount of Um, floor area that the parking requires. is almost as much as the living space for people. So when you take that into account, we are immediately raising the cost of housing. Um, We also, this came up a few years ago in in Hartford, there was um, a, a house in the West End where multiple people lived and um, they had things like auxiliary apartments. That's very unpopular in Connecticut cities because the fear is that each of those people are going to have a car. So therefore, we can't have garages being converted to um, apartments, et cetera. We need those kinds of places if we're going to be able to supply the um, affordable housing that we need. Where I live in 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 Zurich is in, in a fairly um, upscale neighborhood, but it has lots and lots and lots of um, auxiliary apartment, basement apartment, garage being turned into apartments. So you end up with a very mixed community of people living in this place because their apartment at all houses at all different point levels so it's we don't see that in Connecticut because partly because of car dependency and partly because of the idea that if we encourage all these people to move in they're all going to bring their cars it's going to lead to congestion etc so car dependency has a very long tail in affecting lots of things in our society.
2: And Adam, you've also talked a bit about housing on TikTok specifically in New Haven. And there was one TikTok user who asked you, why do you love density so much? Can you talk about that? What's your response?
1: Yeah, so um I think just in, in terms of the previous conversation, also zoning plays a part into it. If you have all your residential uses on one side of the city and all the places that people need to go on the other side of the city then you're basically requiring people um to use some form of transportation to get over there And in connecticut that mainly turns out to be cars whereas if you have more mixed use um places and that's where the density comes in you know if you have commercial uses on the ground floor and then a lot of housing use units above it then you know you can go down onto street level and find everything you need within a simple walk or a bike ride or potentially a bus ride. So um, definitely in places where we have um, mixed-use zoning, we need to have density there um, to support um, those uses.
2: And Dr. Garrick, you mentioned mixed-use as well earlier. Can you respond to what Adam just said?
1: Yes, I think he's...
0: Um, Totally correct. Um, we are building places where cars are needed. So it's about the density, but it's also about the segregation. And even where we have density in Connecticut, we're building such a way that things are segregated. So we will have like a high rise or a relatively high rise in Rocky Hill surrounded by parking. But to get to get a pint of milk, you need to get into your car and drive there. So all of these different things need to come together with the sense that the most important thing in an urban area or even in a suburban area is for people to have access to their everyday needs. And I know that this has become controversial in that it's at the latest conspiracy theory about the um, 15-minute city. But that's all it means, is giving people access to their everyday needs.
2: And a related question next is, there's a professor of urbanism at the Yale School of Architecture who told Connecticut Hearst that, although New Haven residents may be in proximity to certain amenities like grocery stores and schools, The walk and bike score data does not take into account the quality of those nearby services. For example, the professor said that most downtown grocery stores do not offer affordable food items. And additionally, being near a bodega or a convenience store could count as having proximity and get a high score. But it does not account for quality of the products within it. Uh, Dr. Garrett, can you speak on this statement?
0: I think he is exactly correct. I think... um we we have built again in, su- in such a way uh, it's really hard for example people moving into downtown hartford um to get food how can you live in the center of city and then you have to drive to get food but the it's this goes beyond transportation and it start we're starting now to talk about the economic models that we have built up around placemaking. So it's not, in the models that we have, it's not viable to put a supermarket in downtown Hartford. So it's, it's really a much bigger conversation than just transportation or what um, civil engineers can do.
2: And is this also a part of a very complex issue on our reliance towards a silver bullet thinking. For example, more lanes as a solution, Dr. Garrett.
0: I think it is, yes. it's. Um, I, I think what this conversation is showing is the interconnectivity of the, our economic systems, our economic models, our sense of place, and our self, self, sense of self. And all of those things are part of this discussion. It's not saying that we cannot make simple changes that are gonna to start to change the perception. Um, and the example I'll give is Washington DC, which years ago had a bombed out center city. It was The whole city was more or less um, suffering from poverty there are very few places in the city where rich people lived over time the city rebuilt itself it started having services like uh pharmacies and grocery stores all over the city and one of the changes i particularly noted was that when i started going to washington in the early 80s for the transportation research board meeting that only black folks used the bus Nowadays, you see everybody using the bus. So we can start to have these seeds of change that start to change the perception of how we need to use the place and how we need to construct the place where we live.
2: And Adam, we'd love to hear your response to what Dr. Garrett just said. And also, do you see the same reliance on the simple one-time solutions to these very complex and longstanding problems?
1: Yeah, everything is is interconnected. You can build a really great multimodal street, for example, as, a, as an engineering transportation solution, but the land use along that street also needs to support that and they need to kind of play off each other there. So, yes, it's definitely a, a multifaceted issue that requires you know these different solutions from all angles. There, there's no one perfect solution. You can just copy and paste every city.
2: And, you know, we've been talking about a lot of issues that's been long standing and, and historic, really. And so there's a kind of issue of entrenchment in habits and policies. So I want to ask both of you, starting with Dr. Garrett, you know, have you seen this needle move at all recently?
0: Yes, I, I mentioned earlier about the changes in Boston and New York and Portland and Seattle um, 20 years ago. Um, um, 30 years now, none of those cities were considered desirable places to, to live. We have seen massive changes in how we perceive of city living. Um, and it's been exciting to see. Uh, um, <laughs> the problem is I have not seen similar a similar level of movement in Connecticut. Um, and I think part of that is that Connecticut benefited so much from suburbanization that it's really hard for us to stop and think now that we're in a new era that we really need to change also. But yes, change is possible. But even here in Zurich, I mean, 40 years ago, this city was also losing population, was also um, losing economic vitality. And there was a massive turnaround in terms of attitudes towards Automobility, in terms of attitudes towards the transit system, that started to change and build upon itself
1: over time.
2: And Adam, want to get a quick reaction from you too. You know, are you seeing any changes?
1: Uh, yes, over over the last few years, I have seen a significant shift. We still have a long way to go, but there definitely has been a change in mindset um, in terms of transportation, making sure we prioritize all modes of transportation and not just cater to cars and keep widening roads, but you know, also building protected bike lanes and expanded sidewalks and transit services. And then in terms of land use, especially in New Haven, but also in other places around the state, it seems like every week you turn around and there's another surface parking lot that's being torn up and being replaced with um, apartment buildings and and mixed use uh, commercial and residential buildings. So that's really exciting to see. I think we're moving in that right direction.
2: And we got about a minute left, but I would love to ask Dr. Garrett, you know, you've inspired so many students, not just Adam Weber and Hayden Clarkin, who's also known as the Transit Guy on Twitter. Can you speak to this sort of pipeline of transportation experts and public speakers that you have created?
0: Well, it's been really, (laughs) it's really been exciting to see. Um, That's what I miss most about being at UConn is working with students and, seeing how motivated they are and how interested they are in having a different approach to to engineering. Um, And it's it's I've had to come along with myself. I started out as a pavement engineer when I started at UConn. So this was a learning experience um, to get to the point where I was able to share with them my love of cities, my love of um, enjoying cities. And now to see people like Adam and um, Hayden and um, former PhD students like Wes Marshall and Chris McCahill, um having a real impact in changing how things are being done at the state level, at the city level, in universities, and at the federal level also, it's really um, <laughs> I can't, I can't find the right word for it but it it really is um heartwarming for me
2: Well, those were the perfect words, and I want to thank both of you for sharing your love of cities and zoning and transportation and making this such a fun conversation on such a complex issue. You've been listening to UConn Professor Emeritus Dr. Norman Garrick and Adam Weber, Project Manager for New Haven's Engineering Department. Thank you both for being with us today. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app and